Hey friends, Chloe and Michael here, the founders of Mindfully Loved and your co-hosts of the Mindfully Loved podcast. Created with a love of discussing all things healing, growth and slow living, we hope to inspire your own journey toward being a better parent, partner and person. Join us for both interview and discussion-based episodes designed to challenge those unhelpful thought patterns and inspire the positive and sustainable change you need right now. So hello, Tanya, and welcome to our Mindfully Loved podcast. It's really, I'm really excited to have you here and hear all about your journey. So Tanya is currently Florida Keys in her sailboat recording a podcast episode with us. And we are here to learn all about her journey, her experience, and her knowledge that she's bringing through that whole experience of raising kids, five kids in a sailboat and traveling for the last 13 years, was it? Yes, that's correct. And thank you, Chloe, so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to talk about um, all of those things, the journey, um, the outward journey, as well as the inward journey. So I'll just start with you and kind of tell us a little bit about how all this started. I know you've married your high school sweetheart. And so give us a bit of a little timeline, if you like, in how you ended up on a sailboat and how, I guess, you were still there. So obviously it's working for you. So give us a little bit of how all this happened and how is it at the moment for you all? Sure. Um, Well, I... My husband and I used to ride the school bus together, actually, when we were in the 10th grade. And um, when we were dating, one of the things that we would do is we would walk along the city docks and talk about, you know, what life on a sailboat would be like. He had grown up sailing and I had not. Um, But we kind of liked this idea of, you know, ditching the normal life and sailing away. It seemed like a really romantic idea. Of course, it was all, you know, just a castle in the clouds. Like there was no practical... Uh, you know, underpinnings for this dream. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of went off and did the normal thing for a really long time, although we never forgot about that dream. It was something that we would always talk about and return to. It was a way of living sort of a secret life, you know, when you have to do all the normal things, like when school is hard or you're dating long distance. In our case, we Mm -hmm. dated long distance. It was something to talk about that kept us connected. And we had this idea in common. And so um, when we graduated from high school, we got married and we moved into a little suburban house in Atlanta and we had, um, you know, two kids and I was pregnant with our third kid and we were trucking right along and making money and sitting in traffic Mm. and doing all the things that people do. I had retired from my teaching job so that I could stay home with the babies, which was wonderful. I loved my life. It was a great life. Um, We had made that a priority actually before we got married that one of us would you know, be the primary breadwinner and the other one would be the primary parent. That was a decision we, you know, made ahead of time. We had chosen to live debt-free, which was another Mm -hmm. decision that we made ahead of time. And all of those things, I guess, made it possible for us to shift gears so that when we decided to buy a sailboat, when we decided to leave the city and sell everything, we were kind of poised. It wasn't that we knew we were going to do it. We didn't even know how to do it, Mm -hmm. but we were in a place of readiness, you know, in case we felt like doing something different. So we almost bought this other house. It was the bigger, nicer house, you know, the thing that everybody else was doing. And we both had feelings of misgiving, um, Mm -hmm. you know, after we had gone to look at this house. 
And we were both kind of afraid to tell the other one, like, I don't think this is a good idea. And we sat down at the end of the weekend, you know, we were supposed to sign paperwork and both of us, we just couldn't sign the paperwork. And we admitted that we felt like it was a trap and that we should do a U-turn and we should ditch the city and we should try and figure out how to do this thing that we had always dreamed of doing. So that was in, um, let's see, we moved back to Florida in 2003 with three, 2004, with three kids under three, which is crazy to think about. And then we took us like five years to figure it out. So we made a five-year plan. We stuck to the five-year plan. We eventually moved on to a 48-foot catamaran. The boat's name is Take Two. Um, it was our actually our second try. We almost bought this other boat. So the boat came with this this awesome name that was very fitting. We knew when we found it that it was our, you know, our second chance. Yeah. And um, so we bought the boat in 2008 and our oldest was seven. We had a six-year-old, a four-year-old and a one and a half year old. Wow. Yes, I know. I don't know what we were thinking. Now, when I see people with lots of little kids, I'm like, no wonder they thought that we were crazy. You know, people really just did not understand why we would ditch, you know, a wonderful normal life and drag all these kids onto a sailboat. Like, and we just didn't know what we were doing, but we loved it. We loved every minute. We were so excited. It was the most, you know, exciting thrilling scary time of our lives I really love looking back on that when everything was kind of unknown and then for the last 13 years we've been traveling um, all throughout the Caribbean Bahamas east coast of the United States um, in order to keep working and feeding the family we have not crossed any oceans my husband needs to stay somewhat connected so he can be a digital nomad and we have kids who get really severely seasick which we didn't know know, when we bought the boat so like uh, so we're going to, you know, we medicate them at this point, but we have never crossed an ocean. I'm not sure that we are, uh, that we are the circumnavigators that we had once dreamed of being, but I mean, it's not over. We haven't sold the boat. So mm-hmm. I guess uh, anything is possible. Exactly. What place was the first place you sailed to? My, probably my fondest first memory. Um, when we left the dock, we sailed to the Florida Keys and we had Uh, promised the kids that someday when we untied the dock lines and sailed away that we would put them to bed and when they woke up in the morning we would be in a new location and it was this like this exciting exotic idea that you would wake up in a different place and so we sailed to the dry tortugas there's a, a national park that's kind of very very remote beautiful place like crystal clear water reminds me very much of the bahamas if you've ever seen you know bahamian water it's just this beautiful turquoise color. And sure enough, like we were sailing overnight and when the kids woke up, they were all popping out of their hatches, looking around like, where are we, where are we? And, you know, it's just, it was magical. And, you know, there've been, you know, a million memories like that where we have, you know, an overnight passage to somewhere and you wake up in the morning and you find out where are we, you know, what are we anchored near? You know, sometimes it's, you know, candy colored cottages on a beach. Sometimes it's a palm tree resort. Sometimes it's, you know, fishing boats that you anchored near in the night that you didn't even know they were there or mangrove islands or volcanoes. I mean, you just never know. It's really, really exciting. Oh, how beautiful. And how was the process of letting go of material things and becoming a minimalist really kind of, I guess, choosing things to bring into the sailboat and relieving everything because you were living at a house how was that process of really decluttering or 
downgrading for you? Uh, we call it shrinking pains. You know, you've heard of growing okay. pains. We yep. definitely had shrinking pains. Yep. Um, it helped that we downsized twice. So when we left Atlanta, we lost a basement and an attic. Um, mm -hmm. When we moved back to Florida, we just had this, you know, smaller house. And so we had already begun the process of downsizing. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we realized, um, <clears throat> of course, we know that giving is better than receiving. We know it intellectually, but until you've dramatically given generously like given to the point of like where you have nothing left you don't realize it is so fun to give things away especially because every time i had something to give away i would meet someone who needed the thing that i had it was the coolest experience i mean just everything from i i was divesting myself of all these children's books Books were probably the hardest thing for me to give up. And, you know, we still carry a lot of books on our boat, but, and we also have Kindles so that we can have thousands of books, you know, at our fingertips. But I had all these children's books and I met this woman who was just beginning to homeschool her children. And I was able to give her this whole library of children's books. That was, it made it easy, you know, like if you knew that your material things, the things that you valued were gonna continue to be valuable to someone else. And then the other the other thing was we were making a trade-off, a very conscious trade-off mm. to stop collecting stuff and to start collecting memories. Mm. And so in that way, we were completely willing to let everything go because we knew that the that the trade-off would be that we would collect these memories, things that would never end up in a landfill, things that that you would get to keep for the rest of your life. So I think that made it a little bit easier. We we thought that it was going to be hard for our kids to give up their toys and clothes and things. And actually, we gave each of them a little plastic tub and said, everything that you want has to fit in this tub. You know, pick your 10 favorite shirts and your five favorite bottoms. And like, that's what we're keeping. The rest of it, we're going to sell at a garage sale. And if you sell your toys, you get to keep the cash from the sale. Oh and it turns out that our kids would rather have cash than toys because they never put up a fuss, except for, you know, we, we kept the Legos. Legos are a great thing to have on a boat. Um, there were a few things, keepsakes that we kept, but except for that, they, they were pretty much willing to give everything up. Oh, it's amazing. And that's the thing that we don't realize with kids nowadays. We think that they just want toys and thousands of toys, which they don't. You know, it's they, no, they can't enjoy it all. They can't enjoy it all. There's when you have too much stuff, you can't enjoy the stuff that you have. And we find often that you think that you own your stuff, but in the end, your stuff owns you. Mm -hmm. So I would love to tell you that we're minimalist, but like if you look around my boat right now, it feels so cram jammed. I think as the kids have grown up, they're hobbies have become diverse we collect things sometimes we, we're supposed to get rid of something every time something new comes on the boat we're supposed to get rid of something but also the physical size of our children has gotten larger and so you know we started out with two adults and five children and now we have you know six adults and one child and we of course we added a, a child while we were sailing we had we started out with four kids and then had a baby so that was like a whole extra person and all of her stuff. So and how was we're that always experience bring, yeah, bringing a baby into it. And of course, now I know with obviously I work with new um, and expecting parents and the list of items that people think they need at the moment when they have a new baby is enormous. Oh. So how did you find <laughs> Well, I think, okay, so I have five children. So 
you know, there's this joke that when you have your first child and they, you know, drop their pacifier on the floor, you like sanitize it. And then with the second kid, you know, you wash it with soap and water. With the third kid, you kind of like lick it off. And with the fourth kid, you pick it up off the floor and stick it in their mouth. I don't know. The fifth kid probably doesn't even have a pacifier. <laughs> so you get more and more relaxed with each child. I think I was able to to figure out what was absolutely necessary um, from a space preservation standpoint and also just like, what does a, a baby really need? And what we really needed was a comfortable baby carrier so that I could wear her. Um, we needed cloth diapers because we have no way of disposing of, a, you know, a million diapers. And why would we want to clutter up the world with plastic anyway? So, I mean, we just were very simple. All of our kids had a few wooden toys when they were little. We just, we just kept it very simple. And you don't realize maybe until you had you know, the second kid or the third kid, your diaper bag just gets smaller and smaller and smaller until the, in the end you're stuffing, you know, a diaper and a wipe inside your purse and forget about the rest. It works. So, yeah. yeah. So new moms, I think you do feel like it's this thing that we do when we don't know what's coming next. You know, when we're planning for the unexpected, we feel like we need to be prepared for everything. So I think we collect a bunch of stuff because there's no way to emotionally prepare for parenthood. And so you do the only thing that you know to do, which is like buy things. <laughs> so I think after you've, yeah, I think after you've done it a couple of times, then you know, okay, I probably don't need all this stuff. And you recognize there's no way that you can be prepared for it anyway. Yeah, yeah you can have all those things and still. Mm -hmm. Oh, how amazing. And tell us a little bit about the homeschooling part. Yeah, so that's probably like the hardest thing that we do. Um, <clears throat> I was an elementary school teacher. I taught mm -hmm. kindergarten for several years before the kids came along. And I loved my job. I was able to, you know, feel the rewards of being paid to do something that I loved. I was doing something that people valued. Yeah. You know, my students loved me. The parents loved me. And then you know, I retired from teaching to teach my own children. And then I don't get paid. I never get a day off because it's 24 7 you know 365 the students complain constantly <laughs> uh, like it, you're, it's the most unglorious job ever mm -hmm. and yet you know when your ch child learns something okay so you get to take all the blame but you also get to take all of the the credit so getting them to that aha moment when they're learning to read or learning to do long multiplication or something when they have that moment where you're sharing it with them, everything that they learned, you're kind of learning alongside them. So I feel like I got a fantastic education. I don't know about them, but I definitely learned a lot yes. from homeschooling my children. Uh -huh. It's a very humbling experience because mm -hmm. you learn. Um, <clears throat> I mean, no, I was, I was in school obviously. So I didn't, I wasn't learning how to do this from my parents. Mm -hmm. You know, you're taking all of these parenting habits, maybe that you picked up without even realizing it from your own parents and mm. children are a mirror really of your own childhood you're getting to see all the most beautiful and the ugliest parts of your of yourself reflected in your kids so sometimes it's wonderful sometimes homeschooling is like it's magical you know we did this trip up the US, US east coast and we were doing history field trips and to learn history yeah. you know in the place where it's happening or happened is, is wonderful. Mm -hmm. So all of those hands-on field, field trips with the, you know, on location, that was my favorite part of homeschooling. Mm -hmm. And then the not so favorite part is where you realize, 
um, <clears throat> as fun as we want to make, you know, learning the times tables or like some of the things that you have to learn, you just have to learn them. And there's, you know, maybe not a fun way to do it. And so mm -hmm. you do occasionally have to crack the whip. And I don't really like that part very much. Uh, yeah. I wish that I wish that I had been a little bit more relaxed. I think at the beginning, I kind of, mm. I wish I could talk, you know, talk to my younger self and be like, don't worry so much about the curriculum. Don't worry so much about the hours that you spend schooling. It's all the other things that they learn that really end up being important. All the life skills, mm. learning to cook and clean and work as a team and play music and all the human skills that you don't learn in school end up being the most important things. And all those things that I was so stressed about, you know, whether or not they, you know, could read and write and do arithmetic, those things, they catch on anyway, um, you know. Do you think the pressure of society, obviously with homeschool, there's still a bit of a um, stigma sometimes that, oh, kids need to socialize, kids need to structure their schooling. So do you feel being a teacher, did you have that pressure from society as well to really do it the right way, if there is a right way. Um, you know, on the contrary, I taught mm -hmm. elementary school. So one of the reasons that I homeschooled was because I saw the, this very, very dysfunctional system and a very artificial social mm. social system too. Like when in your life are you surrounded only by people your own age yeah. or only from your own neighborhood? So homeschooling in that way is you know, I always say I didn't want my children to be socialized. I wanted them to be sociable. Mm -hmm. And so they would have, you know, friends from age two to 92 um, from all different walks of life, um, travelers of every kind. We met backpackers and sailors and, um, you know, sometimes you'd be staying at a resort marina and you would meet the guests there and you're meeting kids that are traveling from all different countries of the world, you know, meeting up during hurricane season in various places. And so I think it was a very rich social fabric that we gave our children. It's not consistent the way it is in school. So sometimes you're lonely and sometimes, you know, there's too many kids. So you, you don't have the consistency that you have in school, but you also don't have them picking up the same kind of habits that school kids pick up. Um, some of the things that you miss out on when you're homeschooling are good things to miss out on. And I do not feel that pressure from outside at all. In fact, I look at the way kids are being raised and I'm like, sometimes it just feels so sad for the kids that are like stuck sitting in a classroom all day. Yes. So we, you know, we're done by, you know, we can be done by lunchtime and then go do something fun. Like today we finished school by, um, 12 30 one o'clock and we spent the afternoon at the beach with some other homeschool families it was awesome yes and um being a school psychologist obviously i've seen i've seen the broken system so many times and i've always um talked to michael about the idea of homeschooling in the future for our kids and being able to travel around and doing it and obviously i'm not a teacher but everything that you said i resonate so much the experience that they get and having that flexibility and even the other day I was talking to someone and we're talking about how, you know, we put five-year-olds into a schedule, a five-day schedule from, you know, nine to five, nine to four. And how sad is that? They're only five and they, they have to stick to that schedule. We put them in this box and they uh, have to stay there to 18. Yeah. So what's the goal? I guess I'm always thinking about sort of a big picture question. I like the big picture questions and what's the end game? Mm. Are you raising, are you raising um, 
you know, a good citizen that will sit in their cubicle and work nine to five and pay their taxes? Are you raising a robot? Or are you raising a human that's going to grow up to be loving and compassionate and, you know, fully functional? And maybe they're not going to want to work in a cubicle. You know, we have kids that are now, <clears throat> sorry, teenagers, and forming their own opinions about things and their own dreams for the future. And they don't look at all like what my husband and I did. And it makes us a little nervous, I guess, <laughs> because we're like, oh, what do you mean you don't want to go to college? What do you mean you want to go, you know, do this thing? But on the other hand, we raised them without those expectations. And so they're doing exactly what they should be doing, which is pursuing you know, what they think that they would be good at or what they think that they would enjoy. So we have a kid who's smart enough to be an engineer. He could absolutely go to engineering school, but he hates school. He hates sitting in school. He yeah. loves working with his hands. He loves fixing things. And so, you know, he's getting ready to leave the nest and he knows how to fix airplane engines, boat engines and car engines. And he wants to go fix things like that's, you know, he's found his purpose in the world and he wants to go out and try it. And so why would we stop him? Why would we push him? into a box that would make him unhappy. So I guess it really depends on what your end goal is for your children, that they would be happy, functional humans is a really important goal that you could lose sight of if you're trying to compete or, or push them into a mold that someone else says that they need to fit into. And I don't, I don't know who that someone else is, but I'm not really interested in that, yeah. in that model, so. Oh, how amazing, Tanya. And you're inspiring, you know, I'm hoping that you are inspiring so many of our listeners to take that leap of faith and really start dreaming and living out of that box. And I think, I guess the pros of COVID the last few years has been this. People have realized that there's a different life that we can live. And it doesn't have to be going to school every day. It doesn't have to be being at a certain country or town and working we can do that while traveling we can do it through distant you know distant learning distant working and giving us that ability now with technology it's been it's been great so hopefully we'll be seeing more families in the future I don't know what you yeah, think I we did a, we didn't do a lot of sailing last year part of it is because we have teenagers part of it is because of COVID and you know islands opening and closing and you never know what's how what the rules are going to be um, we did a really long road trip in the United States. We <clears throat> we drove 8,000 miles in eight weeks and did this wonderful national parks trip. And we noticed so many families traveling. And it was really exciting to see that kind of flexibility and those eyes opening. And um, I used that COVID time to write a book. And one of the things that I felt was like, the time for this story has arrived. Like the time to talk about what it would be like to take your childhood dreams and actually take steps to following them. And people are ready to hear that. So it was, it was just a timely message. Beautiful. And now you've mentioned your book. So tell us a little bit about your book. It's called Living the Safe Harbor, The Risks and Rewards of Raising a Family on a Boat. Very exciting. Yes. And it does tell, it does tell about raising a family on a boat and about our, our journeys. Um, but I think more importantly, it talks about the metaphysical journey. Yeah. It talks about the um, inner journey that I took as a, as a human being, uh, as a mom, as a sailor, mm -hmm. as a wife, um, the spiritual lessons are, are delved into. It's not a, it's not a fluffy read. Unfortunately, if you're just hoping for a high seas adventure, you'll have to read another book. This is more like my deep thoughts and 
the ways in which living on this boat has changed me as a person and has changed our family. I mean, irrevocably changed us. We could never go back to living in that house in suburbia and be happy. I mean, it really, really has shifted the way that we think about the world, the way that we think about our human family. And um, I wanted to share that with people because I want I want them to think deeply about the purpose of their life and to pursue it because you don't know how much time you have left. I think that's another lesson that that COVID offered us, a glimpse into like a reminder that we are mortal and that you just have this one moment and you had better live it well. Mm. So what are some things that you wish you knew, like you've known when you were younger and starting a family? I just love what you're doing. I just want to just interrupt for just a moment and say, I love that you are approaching it proactively. Mm. I mean, we often sort of stumble into parenthood and then we start to figure out what our habits are. And we start to figure out the, you know, maybe the dysfunctions of our family, my family or my husband's family, they start to show up mm. um, pretty quickly when you're parenting and when you're trying to parent together. And even if you had a solid partnership before the kids mm -hmm. came along, you know, kids expose cracks and fissures in your relationship. They test your limits. And so I love that you're asking people to think about this ahead mm -hmm. of time. And that and that is wonderful. And if I could go back and tell myself, you know, what would I say to myself? Yeah. I now have these 20 years of parenting experience and this 24, almost 25 years of marriage. I, I think, I wish that I could spare myself sort of the pain and angst of learning, but unfortunately I think <laughs> that part of that journey is pain and suffering and learning from our mistakes. Yeah. So I'm not sure that I would be able to save myself any of my mistakes. Yeah. Um, really took me a long time to sort of deal with the dysfunctions of my childhood. And I'm still peeling back layers of, mm -hmm. you know, like of dysfunctional family. Um, my parents were married for a long time. They gave me a pretty solid foundation, but they were never happily married. So I didn't really know what a happy marriage looked like. Um, and I went to public school, so I didn't know what homeschooling would look like. We're living together in a small space all the time with each other. That's a whole separate challenge. Um, I didn't know how to resolve conflict. I mean, we would have these family meetings when I was a kid. And when things got heated, somebody would run out of the room and slam the door. And then like, that would be the end of the family meeting. And my parents would argue and I would go to sleep hearing them fight. And so I never really knew what conflict resolution was. And that was something my husband and I had to, to learn how to do. And you have to do it well on a boat because there's plenty of plenty of conflict in a small space. And you can't, you can't leave the boat. No, you can't leave. No, <laughs> there's nowhere to go. Like you have to resolve it. And when you're homeschooling, you can't just like have a little morning problem and then shuffle the kids off to school. And then, you know, they sort of forget about it during the day. They come home, you give them milk and cookies and everything is forgotten. Oh no, if you're having a problem in the morning, an emotional problem, that problem is with you all day until you resolve it. And you're good luck, like setting aside the emotional problem to deal with the algebra problem. You know, like you're gonna have to solve these emotional difficulties or at least get them to the point where you can, you know, table it and have, you know, have the discussion more in depth. You have these same discussions over and over again, you know, always circling back to these same, you know, issues in your family, usually stemming from some kind of dysfunction in my family. Um, my husband's family, um, he, his parents split when he was 10. Mm. And 
Uh, so he didn't have that model either. And so we are really forging something very different than we experienced. And now we have wonderful parents. And actually, we as adults, we have wonderful relationships with, yeah. with them. And we've chosen to focus on what they did right, mm -hmm. rather than thinking about what they did wrong. And they are wonderful people. And we're so grateful for them. At the same time, we wanted something different. We wanted a marriage that that lasted. My parents ended up splitting up mm -hmm. after 38 years. And so like, we're looking at this, you know, brokenness. And we're like, how can we how can we shore up our marriage, you know, first before the kids are born? How can we build this strong relationship, this foundation so that we can raise happy, healthy humans? And then once they come along, how can we stay together so that we can give them that firm foundation, mm. you know, and, and that happy childhood that we want them to have? And then how can we plan on these years when they're grown that we get to have a second honeymoon? Like, how can we plan for that? So I think at every stage, there's something to look forward to and something to plan for. Mm. And thinking about those questions before they come up is, is so wise. It's so wise to think, what kind of a parent am I going to be? Mm. You know, what, what do you, what to, to sort of hash out some questions with your spouse before these little humans show up and you're sleep deprived and you know, maybe living in a small space. It's really good to think about these things ahead of time. Oh, how amazing. And obviously doing that work in a space where you probably rarely have that alone time. So what were some of your skills or tools that you use kind of to reflect, to recognize, to create a little plan while you were still sailing? Uh, that's an excellent question. So even before I was a mom, even just as a human being, um, I've always tried to have a morning quiet time. And that's like a way to prepare yourself for the day. Um, I, I don't even know where that practice came from. Probably, you know, maybe it was something that my mom did, although I don't have like a distinct memory. Mm -hmm. um, I was raised in a Christian home. And so we would, you know, reading the Bible is part of that quiet time is just sort of seeking, you know, wise words from the past uh, and praying and journaling. I'm, I would not call myself like a religious person in the sense that we're not connected with any kind of denomination or, you know, we're not church going. I don't necessarily need God in a box. <laughs> I don't need anything in a box actually. Um, but I do, I do spend that morning time breathing, um, exercising, uh, reading my Bible, praying, thinking, journaling, um, really set aside some time every single day so that I can develop myself as a human. And it's hard to find that balance when you have newborns, because obviously their physical needs are so high. Now that my kids are older, you know, they can sleep in for an hour and I can get like a whole hour every morning if I want to myself. When they're newborns, you're just trying to snatch five minutes here and there, you know, to try and keep your sanity. Mm. I also did a lot of kayaking. I had a hammock that I would hang out in and it would be sort of like uninterrupted time where the kids would come ask me a question. I'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm in the hammock. I can't answer your question right now. Go ask daddy or figure it out for yourself. Um, as moms, we often set ourselves on, you know, aside, set ourselves on the back burner. And that's okay. I really think self-sacrificing love is a very powerful thing and mm -hmm. unconditional love of your children. But you also can't give out of an empty vessel. Like you can't pour out of an empty pitcher. You must go somewhere to refill that pitcher so that you have something 
to pour out into your children. And so I have definitely run dry. I have definitely lost my cool. I have made so many mistakes. And I've, I've heard things coming out of my mouth that I swore I would never repeat, you know, something that my parents had said to me, something, you know, that I, you know, you make this list when you're a kid, when I'm a parent, I'm never gonna, you know, X, Y, Z. And I've probably broken every one of those rules. <laughs> I, I will say, like, I do see redemption in this generation. Like, I think the, the model that I follow is that my parents had really awful childhoods. Like there's no surprise about the dysfunction that they brought into their marriage because it, it's cyclical, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe they had all of this baggage that they were dragging in from their childhood. Mm -hmm. But I feel that their love probably shrank that amount of, of baggage. So instead of handing me a big suitcase, they probably handed me like a carry-on bag. <laughs> so then as I'm dealing, you know, as I'm sorting through this baggage, I then am handing something off, but I'm not handing off a carry-on bag. I'm giving them like, my kids will get like a makeup kit. Yeah. And ideally, you know, ideally someday I'll watch my pa children parenting my grandchildren mm -hmm. and I'll see that they've done even more work to improve those cyclical problems. Okay. So even though it's not perfect, I would say we have a functional family as opposed to a dysfunctional family. And I would say that with every generation, I'm seeing growth and improvement. And I credit, you know, the mindful decisions that we've made. I credit, you know, the countless prayers that I've prayed to, you know, <laughs> and the, the love that sort of covers over the, the multitude of mistakes um, that, that I'm seeing in this generation. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling good about that. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And it's so important what you said. It's that we're not striving for perfection, you know, and we're not, when we're talking about breaking the cycle, we're not talking about we're doing this work and then the next generation will be all perfect. It is, as you, I love the analogy, like the metaphor that you said about the, the big luggage and then a carry on and then a makeup first. We're letting go of things, you know, we're not letting go of everything because we're humans and healing, you know, continues through our lifetime. But it is all about becoming aware and letting go of things that are not helping us at the moment and then passing on to our kids, you know, fewer of our kids past traumas or, you know, habits that are not serving us the best. But it's not about thriving perfections at this lifetime because sometimes we find parents that are starting this journey that they're putting so much pressure on themselves to heal everything and to become this per the, the perfect couple, the perfect parent and reminding them that it takes time and it's a slow process. And everything yeah. that they're doing even that small step is already so impactful for the future generation without even knowing that yeah so it's that's absolutely true and you and you just have to keep forgiveness is such a powerful thing because you can keep offering yourself grace you have to forgive yourself you have to ask for forgiveness you have to forgive others and that can really really go a long way to healing. So even when I would say one of the main differences, say between my generation, between my parents' generation, we have a very strong view of our parental authority. We definitely have been on this planet longer than our children. And we definitely, they need our wisdom and they need to learn from us. So we don't have a problem stepping into our authority, but we're not so authoritarian that we can't humbly apologize. And I think that's a difference um, in my generation, as opposed to my parents' generation, where they had this very strong sense of authority, and you would never apologize to your children, because that would be, you know, humbling yourself before yeah. your kids and sort of chipping away at your authority. 
I, I don't think that it chips away at your authority at all. When I screw up, I go to my kids and I apologize because I want them to know how to do that. I want them to know how to forgive and how to apologize. So I think if I've done, you know, maybe I repeated all the mistakes of my parents, but when I screw up, I've apologized. And that even just that one thing is very, very powerful because you can forgive someone even if they haven't apologized to you. You can say, I choose not to hold this thing against you. You know, you screwed up and you may never apologize to me, but I don't want to carry around the weight of this bitterness anymore. You can definitely forgive someone if they don't for, for ask, you know, ask for forgiveness. But if someone apologizes to you, it opens up the door and makes forgiveness so much easier. So, you know, I've done the forgiveness work you know, looking at my past and thinking about, you know, what my parents did wrong and forgiving them for that. And then looking at what they did right and expressing gratitude for that. Mm -hmm. And then I just want to make it that much easier for my kids to go through that process as they go into adulthood, because I'm sure that they will have things um, that they have to work through and, um, uh, you know, ask forgiveness for, or be, you know, forgive me for. Yes, exactly. And that is, that is so powerful, Tanya. And I think a lot of us don't realize the modeling, when we do something, even, even going back to that self-care and that self-love, filling your own cup, how important is for our kids to see us model those behaviors? Sometimes our signing time for ourselves and having that alone time, see us, see ourselves resolve conflict, see us as apologize, that we don't realize how impactful it is for our kids. They catch up on doing those things just by looking at us doing it rather than just us telling them what to do they actually see us doing it. Absolutely. Mm. And they're picking up on relationship cues, not just from sibling relationships, not just parent-child relationships, but also the, the marriage relationship. They are really learning, like, what does it look like to find someone that you're compatible with? What does mm -hmm. it look like to resolve conflict? What does it look like to still be in love with someone after 25 years? Yeah. And so, and actually, they think it's funny when we fight. It's it's maddening. I mean, I guess we have fought so rarely. I mean, in a, like, loud, you know, angry way, we just typically don't resolve conflict that way. You know, maybe we did as newlyweds, but at this point in our marriage, we communicate so effectively that we very rarely fight. And when we fight, our kids think it's hysterical. <laughs> you know, they're laughing and I'm so, I'll get so angry and I'm like, but they already know they'll be like, mom, you're going to end up apologizing. You should probably just stop now. And I'm like, Wah! so I guess we did something right. If they think that our fights are funny. Um, but really, we, we set aside time for ourselves as a couple. It's something we have always done ever since that first baby came along. We never, ever neglected our relationship because although it's tempting to let that tiny boss, mm. you know, rule your life, you have to remember that that tiny person joined your family. They didn't make you a family. You were already a family and they joined something that already existed and you cannot neglect that partnership because you're going to need it at every step of the way to solve problems, um, just for an emotional cushion when things are hard. Mm -hmm. And someday those kids are gonna grow up and go away and you're gonna need that relationship you know, to become primary again. And so we have always had a date night. And when we couldn't find a babysitter, then we would put the kids to bed early and watch a movie or we would go for a walk. Or um, even now, like during COVID when everything was closed, we, we just would sit out on the back steps of our catamaran with, or we would take a dinghy ride, you know, with a, um, a drink and a snack and just sit and talk and watch the sunset. 
And that was sort of our sacred time and our kids know not to interrupt. Yes. And, that and so awesome. we've modeled that for them. Yeah. Someday they may also make that relationship primary and they'll have learned that from us. And that's, I feel really, I feel proud about that, that we, that we made that a priority and that we modeled that. Cause that was not something that we saw that we witnessed as children. Mm, yeah. And if you were able to do that by living on a sailboat, being able to still find that time for you two, it's just amazing. That means that there's no excuse for either of us. Yeah. Yeah, I think really that's, I think that's what I would really hope a takeaway would be from my story, whether you're listening to me talk or whether you, mm-hmm. you know, pick up my book and read it. The idea would be like, if this neurotic woman and her workaholic husband can take their five kids and leave <laughs> suburbia and go sailing, you know, and, and find this deep, fulfilling, happy life, then what else is possible? Like nothing is impossible. So I really would want people to take that away. Like, I don't think everybody's going to want to sell all their stuff and go sailing. Like, There's plenty of wonderful things about it, but it's also a really hard and challenging life. And, you know, there's storms at sea and all kinds of other crazy crap that happens. But I do think that everybody has a dream and that, you know, sometimes they back burner and, and that they need to know that that's possible. Mm-hmm. For sure. And in your book, obviously, you talk a lot about your own journey. But do you talk a lot? Do you talk a lot about, um, I guess, any mishaps that happened during your journey, difficulties, any failures? Or is it just really based on your reflections of your own healing and growth? So the, the book, each chapter is named for a different nautical idiom, um, like close quarters or don't rock the boat um, or ships passing in the night. And with each nautical idiom, I chose to focus on one area of our life. So ships passing in the night is about our friendships because you're constantly saying hello and goodbye. Close quarters is about when we moved aboard with toddlers. And obviously we know what close quarters means in a very literal way, not just a figurative way. So each chapter explores the nautical idiom, the physical meaning of that idiom, the actual literal meaning on a sailboat. And then also, of course, the metaphysical meaning and the, the metaphor that's connected with that, that mm-hmm. idiom. And all of the chapters deal with conflict and <laughs> difficulty and, you know, all kinds of like, usually my personal failings are highlighted because <laughs> I was painfully honest when I wrote the book. Uh, my husband usually comes out uh, like the hero because he often is. <laughs> and like, there's one chapter called smooth sailing and it's, you know, like the shortest chapter in the entire book. <laughs> so, uh-huh. Yes, there are sunsets and dolphins <laughs> and, you know, coral reefs and beautiful islands and volcano hikes and, and waterfalls. They're all of those things are in the book, but it's also a lot about um, storms at sea and mom's temper tantrums <laughs> and um, when things break and when things burn and when they leak and when people get hurt and all of the honest hard things are in there too. But to be honest, um, we learn so much more from the mistakes and from the hardships than we do from the, you know, beautiful, smooth sailing days. Oh, how so the, the learning the learning happens in the hard parts and so I did not leave out any of the hard parts mm. oh well I'm looking forward to reading it um but where can our listeners find your book and where can they buy it from well of course uh like every other book in the world these days you can find it on Amazon um but actually I've been told that you can go into any bookstore and ask and they can often get it for you so you know if you love to patronize your little local bookstore that would make my heart happy to know that um 
that you could walk in and they could order it and you might have to wait a little a little while but then you can support a local bookstore as well as you know uh, an author Beautiful. Oh, thank you, Tanya. Well, before we finish up, I always love to ask this question to all people that I interview. What do you do for self-care? What is your self-care time? So that would be um, my mornings, my first thing in the morning. Um, <clears throat> last year, I read a book by Hal Elrod called The Miracle Morning, and it really helped develop consistency in my morning routine. I always did have some time that I would set apart for myself, but this helped me really solidify what I do. So um, there's a, an acronym that you can sort of follow so that you do sort of the same five or six things every single morning. My routine is very consistent. I get up, I make myself a cup of tea or coffee. Um, I usually do about 15 to 20 minutes of yoga. I pray, read my Bible, journal, and then I usually do some kind of writing because I'm a writer. Um, and then I off, I've added this year and part parts of last year, but also this year consistently, I play music for about five to 10 minutes every single day. And that has added a lot of um, joy inside into my life. Um, I play the ukulele and I sing and it makes me happy. So <laughs> that's one of the things that I do for self-care. And I'm, you know, getting a lot of fresh air and sunshine and um, just peace from that routine. And it really, I, it, that takes me through the whole day. That really, you know, starts my day right. Yeah. Oh, sounds beautiful. Very inspiring. <laughs> and if our listeners would love to connect with you or learn more about you, how could they do that? Um, I have been keeping the blog at take to sailing T-A-K-E-T-W-O-S-A-I-L-I-N-G since 2008. And that sort of has the whole story with photographs. Um, um, of course, you could read the book. And then um, I'm not spending a lot of time on social media these days, but I can still be found at, um, at Take Two Sailing on Facebook and Instagram and Tanya Take Two on Pinterest. Um, I'm just, I'm taking a little breather from social media, but I'm sure uh, I still post things automatically. So. Oh, perfect. Thank you so, so much. This has been a lovely chat. I, I feel like you're inspiring so many people just by doing what you're doing. And it's amazing to see that even though you're a wife and a mom of five living in a sailboat, you still continue working on yourself, prioritizing yourself, breaking cycles and just continue to grow. And it's such an amazing um, thing to see. And thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Tanya. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to share a little piece of my story with your listeners. <laughs>